0: Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi
1: everyone, welcome back to Medicus. My name is Aaron Dang and I'm joined today with
2: Griff Johnson.
1: Today I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Yvonne Cuesta. Dr. Yvonne Cuesta was born and raised in the Dominican Republic, where he attended and graduated from the Instituto Tecnológico de Santo Domingo. Uh, I apologize for my accent. He completed his residency in neurology at Temple University in Philadelphia and his fellowship in neurologic critical care at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Currently, Dr. Cuesta serves as a neurocritical care attending at Advocate Lutheran General here in the greater Chicago area, as well as on faculty at the Rosalind Franklin University Chicago Medical School. Thank you, Dr. Cuesta, for your time and presence here at Medicus and for offering to share your experiences with our audience.
3: I think that accent was great, and thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. We've given you a little bit of an introduction already, but would you be able to introduce yourself a bit more to the listeners?
3: Well, um, yeah. Um, so I'm Ivan, and I'm from Dominican Republic, born and raised. Started medicine over there, and after a very eye-opening rotation in Miami, I decided to come to the United States which kind of like is the reason why I'm here sitting right now.
2: Um, As we stated in the introduction, and you stated in your introduction, you attended um, med school in the DR, and you were born and raised in the Dominican Republic. So what was your pathway to medical school in uh, the Dominican Republic? And how does that differ to um, medical school in the U.S.? Like, does someone have to get a bachelor's degree like they do here in the DR.?
3: Yeah, so um, whenever I started studying medicine, um, I didn't start with the idea or the intent of, you know, coming to the United States. Um, Medical schools in the DR, you know, we are a poorly sensed 11 million plus people. So medical schools over there are usually meant to create doctors for the community. And yes, a lot of people do go into medical school with the intent of eventually coming to the United States or other countries, uh, like Spain, it's a big one. But for me, um, I went to med school just, you know, with the intent of staying in the DR. Over there, when you're in um, high school, um, you apply from high school directly to medical school. You don't do any um, any college that doesn't exist. We just say university. Um, and yes, there are some pre-med, subjects that you do at school it's about one and a half two years and in total your school um, for my university was five and a half to six years is what you last in medical school others are most of them are about six years but the pathway for me was different because again I didn't I didn't intend to you know to come for residency at the very or in the middle of my clinical rotation years um, there was like a line in my medical faculty and I made the line and I asked what is this line for and then they said oh it's for a rotation in Miami and I was like okay I'll sign up and they eventually they you know they got me in and I just did it as an experience Um, my dad happens to be an OB-GYN doctor who was like a little town physician that you know will trade chickens and oranges for medicine, so um, he knew how hard it was to be a town doctor, so he was like, you go there, you experience things, you see if you like it, and if you like it, I would support you a hundred percent if you want to leave. And then when I came to Miami, I did my rotation, I always kind of knew that I wanted neurology, and I saw the the gap in terms of like um, technology and latest um, interventions in neurology, between the Dominican Republic and the United States. And that's how I decided to then come here.
1: I think you delineated a little bit about the technological gaps that you saw between your home country of the Dominican Republic and the United States in terms of medical practice. Do you have any examples of distinct differences between the medical practice that we can see in Latin American countries, such as the Dominican Republic, versus those in the United States for those who've never practiced or understood what it's like to practice in other countries?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Specifically for neurology, for example, there's a a few very clear examples. Um, The quality of medicine is not very well distributed and the country is like very concentrated in the capital and in the most important city in the north. And then, you know, the countryside and the towns don't necessarily have a lot of technology. So the quality of medicine kind of like varies and the technology does as well. Uh, for neurology specifically, people were not getting IVTPA on the regular, for example, something that had been established in like mid 1990s. Um, I was a student in 2007 to 13th and back then I wasn't seeing that at all and I think even today it's not something that you can get everywhere. So you would have to have a stroke in the capital and with a neurologist who happens to be on call maybe in the appropriate hours so that's one thing. There's probably two centers that can do a thrombectomy um, and that's like more recent but I. Um, I knew of thrombectomies, but I've never seen one being done back home. So, those two big examples. Another one was like the existence of a neuro ICU uh, that is also not something that existed there. Um, so, and you know, with other specialties, there's many other um, examples. So, it's the surgical part, the hands-on part, it's over. It's there. I mean, we do we do a lot of things with our hands, but the technology is not. Necessarily present, so no LVATs, Impellas, things like that.
2: Gotcha. So you didn't, you weren't seeing uh, a lot of interventional
3: neuroradiology? Not at all. No. I, I. It was a surprise to me that you know neurologists were serving as intensivists and as, in certain cases, as interventionalists. And that was important to me because in uh, most of the world, neurology is a fellowship of internal medicine. And I happen to like internal medicine quite a bit. Because, you know, when you hear people when they do neurology, it's because they don't like internal medicine, which was very weird to me. Um, I like neurology because in my view, it was the best part of internal medicine. Um, and when I realized that you only do a year of neurology here, I had like cold feet. Kind of like thinking, oh, am I might not really going to do internal medicine? Just do one year, like not really know or experience that. And the fact that I saw neurologists being intensive isn't kind of like coming back to the whole body. That was very important to me. That's the one way I could justify, okay, I can come here for, do one year of internal medicine, but then I can do a fellowship in um, neuro ICU and come back to the whole body and learn about whole body physiology and like how to take some care of somebody ill. And that was very important to me to see that.
2: Okay, yeah. And so then what was that like the what was the match process like to you? Like how difficult is it for someone who trains out, out of the United States to to come and match as like an international medical graduate?
3: Yeah. And I don't know if you were interested in the whole story. I happen to know a little bit. So it's like in the eighties it was not hard at all. Because um, you know, the United States needed doctors from other countries. And I think up until like the mid nineties it was like just one test. They called it the foreign. I think it was like the foreign medical graduate test or something like that. It was one test. Apparently it was not, you had to study a lot, but it was not as hard as the steps uh, as they are. And people will take that one test and then they'll be eligible to do a, a fellowship or a residency. For me, since I very much decided to come to the United States at my last rotation, literally, after I came back and I graduated, I just... Um, sat down and basically, um, there were other people that had done this, um, and we share a lot our experiences because it's a hard experience, and there's a lot of support in the, you know, in the community of people that have done this and have had good results. And basically, I um, research all the all the the whole process and the resources that we had. So my process um, after doing my research, I figure out that I would do a video course that was called the Kaplan. So I watched and did those videos for four months. So I would basically do one book every two weeks and the videos of that book, um, except for biology, I think it is, um, or biochemistry, that that took me a month. So I would watch the videos, that kind of like helps you um I feel lagoons of things that either you didn't learn or you didn't remember because you're doing, you're doing basic science now after you finished the whole medicine. Like I had not seen basic science in years. So it fills lagoons of things that you didn't even see or things that you didn't remember. And also it feel, feels fills lagoons of medical English because I knew English from before, basic English of you know I was able to watch a movie and understand 60, 70% of it. But um, I was not conversant- conversational, and I was not very aware of uh, English, uh, medical English that much. So that helps with that. And then the other four or five months, um, it was basically first aid, and that was the one that I literally like just memorized from top to bottom and with another video program. that I, Now I forget the name, but it's um, Doctors in Training. That's what it was. That process took me, there was a, there, there was a few hiccups because I had to work for a little bit. So when you do this, you're like literally Monday to Saturday, you're sitting down from 8 to 12, taking a break to eat, and then you do 2 to 6 or 8 p.m. every day, like six days a week. Um, that's what I was doing. And even when I was like in vacation or doing something, I was like on my app doing something like memorizing things. Then I took the step one about nine, like after nine to ten months of that process. Um, step two was basically the same. I did Kaplan, I did First Aid, but that took a little bit less because after you do step one, then now you are familiar with all the things that you were lacking. Um, you are more familiar with medical English, and then step two is kind of like it's like a different focus of the step one. So that only took me four months to to study for there were other people studying so after i took step 2 ck then we have we had the step 2 cs and we would a lot of people would meet and we would like do mock interviews and s- scenarios for the like all the kaplan cases and the first eight case cl- cases that they had we would do them together and practice i could i kid you not that was like the exam that i was the most nervous Ever in my life more than step one and step two CK because that like required me actually talking and remember, I was not conversational, so I had never been more nervous in my life, um, but it went well. Um, I took it in Atlanta
2: I think that's and that's something that's like unique to well now I think it's unique to international medical graduates because most u s students don't have to take c s anymore because of all the yeah like, increased a, a ps.
3: Right, a lot has changed, and I don't know how's that going to look in the future for people, because I guess we're going to get into that in a little bit, but one of the ways um, that an international medical graduate can be a step up or be competitive for residency is your step one score, your step two CK score, and now the step one doesn't even have a score, and I don't know how that's going to affect IMGs, um, but, you know, I was lucky to have a good score, and that's how I got into, you know, a decent program for Neurology. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm sure people are still going to get residencies, but I don't know how you're going to make yourself more competitive other than research, which is, in itself, very hard from a Latin American country.
1: I think, kind of expanding that as well, um, especially in the last 10 years, there's been expansion of not just MD programs and the competitive competitiveness of every single residency program. But I think the expansion of DOs and the combination of the DO and MD programs together has greatly increased the number of medical graduates in the United States specifically. And I think that also is starting to put a, a squeeze on the international medical graduates who are attempting to come into the United States. Um, do you feel that that's the case? And do you feel like it's it's only going to become more difficult for international medical graduates coming to United States to practice in the future? Or do you think that there are going to be different avenues for those students and those physicians to come to United States and practice in the future?
3: I mean, I think historically, it's just, it's been getting harder. Um, you could see in the 80s and 90s, somebody taking one test and getting into a surgical residency. Nowadays, for you to do that, and I was lucky enough to like generally like a residency or a specialty that wasn't that competitive or it's not that competitive but there's a lot of people um that they really want a certain specialty and they have to come here for two three years to do research before they can apply and um i think that's going to be more and more common even for residencies like neurology, where you have to come in and do, you know, spend a year or two of your life doing research. And I mean, it makes sense that the United States wants to step up and make as many doctors as they want. Um, it makes sense. And I get it. It's just an inconvenience for IMGs. is going to be a lot harder, I think.
1: So I think we've already discussed a little bit about your time and experience studying for step one, step two, and step three. Would you be able to delineate a little bit more about the timeline that you took in the years postgraduate in preparation for those exams and for your for your experience applying for residency in the coming years after your graduation to the United States?
3: I took those two years basically to take the steps and then um, do the interview. As mentioned before, it took me with some hiccups with like having to work and whatnot. It took me about nine and a half, ten months to study and take step one. And it was about four months for step two CK, a month for step two CS, then having to take it, uh, then applying and doing the interviews. It was a, a whole two years between deciding to do this and matching. Gotcha. And then so just
2: and just to put this in like a time perspective. You said it's six years, five and a half to six years from high school right. is is med school in the dr. So, right? How old were you at this point?
3: Yeah, so I got into med school at eighteen. I graduated at twenty three. Okay. Uh, but then I was twenty five by the time I match, and I just had turned twenty six when I came to the country.
2: Okay, so you were like near the normal age for someone who had gone through like a traditional.
3: Half. Right, which made me really um, wish that I knew that I wanted to come to the States a lot earlier um, and, uh, and a lot of people a lot of people know you know you have those schools in the other islands in the Caribbean that are designed for people that want to come to the United States, and those people do the process a lot faster because the the um, the steps are embedded into the curriculum and that was not for me i was on my own at that point and even my school right now because um people were doing fairly well in the steps now they um one of the things that that caribbean medical schools do is that they apply to be eligible for federal loans and my school um, got that so a lot of people actually now they come to the med school with the intention of um getting into the united states so those are kind of like the the steps are embedded into medical school so they can take a little less
2: okay so w- one way that things have changed since you or that's a way that things for have for my school since-
3: yeah there was another school that already looks like the most expensive school in the dr that they already like they even had um the med school in english so it's like very much guided towards people that wanted to come to the states
1: So one of the next questions we wanted to ask was a little bit more after you got prepared, got your application together, what was that match process like? Uh, Was it difficult to get interviews? Did you feel like you were at a disadvantage? Were you able to match into a categorical residency or did you do a preliminary year and have to match a second time? Um, And how did this all affect your training?
3: Uh, well, remember when I said that I got cold feet about neurology? I actually ended up applying for both internal medicine and neurology. And it happens to, um, contrary to our belief back in DR, um, neurology is actually easier to get into than internal medicine because not as many people like it. Um, and I experienced that because um, for neurology I would get um, a lot of interviews in academic program programs are categorical and all that uh, for internal medicine not as much um, so I could I could see that um, I the process of matching I mean when you're an international medical gradu- graduate you just apply everywhere um, I met somebody who had applied to like 118 places for internal medicine I um, a lot of my friends were nervous because I only applied to, like, 40 or less than that, actually. But <laughs> my friends were, were really worried about me. Um, but, you know, you, you apply to a, a, a large array, and I had a very good score, but coming from an international medical um, school, uh, places that would usually give you that, um, give you an interview, didn't because you're an IMG. Um Another determinant is the type of visa that you uh, pick uh, when you're doing the application. And We can go a little bit more into that, but there's there's nuances into there's two types of visa. There's more than that, but mainly two types of visa visa, and there's nuances to that. And you know, if you're an H, um, it's less convenient for them. If you're an J, it's more convenient to them. So you can see that um, you can see that difference, and then. There were other programs that straight up they wouldn't, they just either didn't take IMGs or they only uh, supported one kind of visa. So, uh, yeah, you you, you can definitely feel that. And it's something that you know, it's not like that offensive or anything like that. It's just something that you know that it's the reality and you deal with that.
2: And then was your. did you match categorical, or did you match? Did you do a prelim year?
3: No, I did match categorical, and again, it's um, it's because of the residency itself. So usually, the prelim years is for um, people are trying to do general surgery, things like that, where they might match. And I mean, I know I have friends that did three years of a prelim year of surgery, and then some of them ended up like changing their residency altogether. So I know that. But I, I again, I was fortunate enough to generally like a specialty that was not that um, competitive.
2: So you were saying that there's two types of visas and one is more preferable than the other for the institutions that you're applying to. What's that process like um, for like IMGs yeah. trying to get is it so you apply for the visa and then. You hear back about which one?
3: Are there specific like
2: implications on which ones you can apply to, or
3: right? So when you when you go to ERAS, there's I don't remember other options, but I remember J and H. And basically, H visa is a work visa. So the 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 person responsible for that, or the institution responsible for that visa, is your employer. So for a work visa, the responsible person is directly the hospital or the program that matches you. A J visa is a student visa, so it's actually um, sponsored by the GME, so they are responsible for that, for the cost and everything. So given that an H visa requires more paperwork, more money for the program than a J visa would be because it's the problem of of GME. So you would see that the more competitive program is, usually Ivy Leagues and the academic medical programs, they might just not take H visas at all or word visas. They might just take J. The process of that, often most people just put J and then they uh, there There's a section where they ask you which kind of visa you, you want. And you can do that for every program that you apply to. And that's what I did. I made sure that for every program, if they offered H, I would pick H and then... If there was a program that I really wanted to be at, but only offered J, then I would just apply independently to that. That's important for an IMG in different ways. So if you pick a J visa or a student visa sponsored by GME, then number one for residency, you have more access to Ivy Leagues and like better programs, but also even the programs that offer both you may get a better chance to match and they might just offer you a J. The problem with that, the downside would be that after you graduate from residency and fellowship, you have seven years total to train and after you graduate, you have two options. You either work for three years in an underserved area of the country and those jobs are sometimes extremely difficult to get and they basically because you really need it, the terms, I mean, the pay is fair, but the terms of the work, they kind of play with that a little bit. Or you have to go back to your country for two years and then apply for a work visa after two years from your country. And another thing about JVs is that then f- to do fellowship, you again, you have a lot more options. And I can talk about how limited I was because I was on an H-Visa and I was not willing to change that. And an H-Visa, again, it's not convenient for the program, so you have less options. It's more difficult to get into a residency. There's some places that won't even interview you with that. But you, you already work, so you are already in a different status, not in a student status. So number one, you can just extend that H visa once you finish training um, so you don't have to do an underserved area you can you have more leeway with the job that you get and also all those years that you were on a work visa count for you to apply for uh, American residency so for me the first year of fellowship I applied for an American residency and by the time I took a job um, I was already on that one year extension of the work visa and I was already waiting for my green card so I got my green card before finishing my first year of, of work which is very convenient um, and not something that uh, you know people with J visa can can do mm-hmm.
1: sort of taking a step back from the international medical graduate side on a personal level obviously you're moving away from the Dominican Republic where I'm assuming a significant portion of your family is from and and Resided. How was your experience coming to the United States and going through a pretty rigorous residency program and starting to learn about um, your new setting and and uh, a new language and, and the medical education here in the United States?
3: It's um it's interesting. It's very hard in the beginning, to say the least. Um, again, you're not even though you study for the CS, you're not conversa- conversational. So I remember. The, the my first 2 week rotation was in the heart failure service which is like a pre ICU service and the only thing i learned was to how to make a progress note you guys do a lot of like acronyms and stuff and i i did not know what HTM COPD uh, DMT2 PTS/B like all this stuff i did not know what it was so my first 2 weeks where i was supposed to learn about melpernone drips and Heart failure physiology, all I learned was how to write a progress note in a piece of paper. It was hard, and, um, you know, I remember my resident to, like, look at me in the eyes, know that I was, like, suffering and say, like, you're going to be okay, you're going to be okay. Um, My second two-week rotation was in the ER, and you know how your ER peeps are. They're super cool, but um they're very protective of their specialty (laughs) when any uh people from outside come in they're like you know that might not be the nicest in the beginning and um again i was not very conversational i was sometimes you just plainly look stupid when you start working um and it's a very hard process and um i think i've cried twice in my life once when i was like 10 years old for some something stupid and like after an adult of course as a kid i cried a lot but after, like, an adolescent adult, like, I cried, like, at age 12, 14. And then once when I was, like, um, off a overnight um, ER shift, that was, like, my first one, where I just, like, plainly felt stupid. And another IMG that was in neurology, she was a PGY-2, she just had gone through uh, the intern year she looked at me she say hi. She said hi but she kind of noticed that i had a hard time and as the elevator doors were closing she said i know it's okay it's gonna be all right and when the elevator door closed i just started weeping i was not planning to cry but when she like recognized that that you know that i had a hard time um that was kind of like that touched me so there's a little it's very hard but it's a very steep learning curve like when you just have to, when a language is very easy to learn when you, you have to, when you're there. One of the reasons why people don't learn is because people are a little shy and they don't practice, they don't expose themselves to the language. There's no other way when you're already working. So it's a very, very steep learning curve. And I think you get over it like within the first month. And I think that's what it took. It took me four weeks to kind of like feel Okay. You know, the changing culture is just something that I'm grateful to experience. You like open your mind, not only the American culture, but also the other people from other countries that come here in this melting pot and had never met anybody from India. I mean, there are Indian descendants in the DR, but they're fully Dominican at this point. So all these cultures, all these foods, all this, the, 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 the experience of living somewhere else that has different laws and... Culture, something that's just a experience that makes you more grounded, that opens your mind, and that's um, that's an experience that is beautiful. Especially during residency, when you are, you make friends, even though you're kind of weird because you don't get the humor or the English. You're not witty enough. I've been here for eight years now. I still, I still think I'm a better person in Spanish. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm like more. I'm funnier, and I'm wittier, I'm smarter in Spanish. But um, in residency, you are living with these people 24-7. You're like, share so much that you are obligated to make friends. Those are the main friends that I have in this country are my people from residency, which actually last weekend I was hanging out with them. And um, it's a great experience, something that you cannot reproduce because nowadays if I go out... Like I can't make a friend the way I made a friend during residency. Gotcha. So, um,
2: sort of moving ahead in in this. Um, so you're in the neuro ICU, and that required neurology residency and then a neurocritical care fellowship. Is there a reason you chose the neurocritical care fellowship? Um, what's the, what was what drew you to neurocritical care versus just neurology? And then also like, do you, are there pros and cons for other maybe pre med or medical students that might be interested in in neurocritical care specifically
3: Uh, for my specific case first of all it was the first experience that i had here in the states because i was supposed to rotate with neurosurgery but um on my first day i told the neurosurgery resident i really want to do neurology can i just hang out with the neurology people and since they had a lot of patients in the neuro icu that's why i ended up ended up like hanging out so that was my first exposure um, to neurology in this country was neuro ICU but um, also the fact that I really liked internal medicine you only do one year here and that was my form to kind of like in my mind justify doing residency here in neurology because I could do neuro, neuro ICU and kind of like come back to the whole body um, the good thing there are many many pros um Number one, it's kind of like that in, like if you like impatient or the impatient vibe, um, that's all you do. From you know, some people may do um, some outpatient stuff, but ninety nine percent of neuro ICU people don't. So that's the only thing that you do. So if you really like impatient, that's the one thing. Uh, the holistic view of the human body, where you relearn all these things about human physiology, not only the brain. Neuro ICUs are closed nowadays, so you do your whole procedure. You are, and intensive so you intubate you do central lines you bronk, you do all these things that are in the icu so um you are truly an intensivist but also it's not a it's not as intense as a kind of like a mickey or a cq would be so i think for longevity and work-life balance um every shift it's a little bit more slow paced than a mickey or a cq uh shift would be so um if you like adrenaline a lot might not be your kind of ICU but if you want to do this for a long time might be the best the cons um, you know some of the very geeky neurology things um, you don't see as much you know the that, those specific movement disorder things uh, uh, those outpatient stuff that are very geeky that a lot of a lot of us like um, you might not be as exposed my way to come back to that a little bit is to do a general neurology shift whenever I can uh, because I have that opportunity and you you know if you really want to do that you have the opportunity I'm sure you can find that Um, because I don't really like outpatient because of the whole paperwork I stick to neurohospitalist shift and you know I do a little bit of general neurology here and there and that's kind of like my way to stay in touch with that
1: and then as you stated Earlier, and as we talked about during the introduction, you have a position with some of the medical education side here in the United States at Rosalind Frank Chicago Medical School. Um, and from your position overseeing medical students in the neuro ICU, what do you think is the biggest differences that you see between the medical education and the way that we learn here in the United States now versus that of what you experienced both within your residency in the past here in the United States and your medical school training back in the Dominican Republic.
3: Yeah, well, uh, there's a lot of difference, of course. with um, number one, the way you guys do things uh, with having college, um, I've always thought that college makes you a more rounded person. It, it you know it gives you other experience, having a major and a minor and all that. I. Don't think that for the practice of medicine, it's necessary. Now, some people might want to do research. Some people might want to do a PhD and things like that. But if you just want to be a run-of-the-mill doctor who you know goes to work, takes care of patient, does his job, that's, I don't think that's something that's necessary. But that's the system that you guys have here. The pros would be that you have more well-rounded person you you have more knowledge you have a life before you went into medicine and i was talking to griffin about this where like you know you have a life i didn't have a life i had high school and then med school
2: i traded my life i don't have a life anymore
3: and there's pros and cons about that right but um um it might be for a lot of people a waste of time if they just want to be a doctor and, and practice medicine so that's one Um, The other thing, you know, you guys are exposed to the technology. You guys are exposed to the latest of the latest. Um, There's a lot more emphasis on being um, evidence-based, and that's very good. The one thing that I would say it's different is that I feel like people here are not as hands-on as in the DR. And, um, you know, in the DR, I would scrub in very early. You do procedures On the other side, you also phlebotomy, you're also transportation, you are the one who takes the patient to x-rays, so I mean there's pros and cons on that, Um, but some of the culture of not being hands-on that was was a little bit shocking to me, and I would say I'm one of the attendants that would let people do more and more um, if they want to, if you know, if you want to do an LP with me, just do it, like I would have a student intubate somebody with me there, um, because that's that's the way I learn. There's like other cultures in terms of medicine. For example, one like one example would be the use of opiates. For example, like there are things that you guys um, believe here. For example, I had somebody with a sickle cell crisis, right? And somebody said, "Well, it's sickle cell crisis that it's IV opiates," and I was like, "Okay." Um, I saw hundreds of people with sickle cell because we have a lot of African um, ge- genes in our, in our culture that are mixed. So there's a lot of people with sickle cell. And the hardest medication that I ever used was IV tramadol and that worked like magic. So there are like beliefs in, in terms of the culture of practicing medicine, the happy faces for your pain score. All of that was kind of like, it was crazy to me. It was incredible. And I think it's good to be patient-centered, but also we can see some of the problems that that has brought whenever you're only patient-centered. And I think I've always concluded that the perfect medicine is somewhere in between. Um, It's not quite there, but not quite here. It's somewhere in between where you're a little bit more hands-on, you're not so paternalistic, but also you have to take medicine into control as well. Another example would be fixing things with pills rather than like doing stuff like, you know, in my ICU, I'll fix a constipation with sacral stimulation. That's what the surgeons did in the DR instead of doing medications and lactulose and milk of my And whenever I would explain to somebody that you could do this and make somebody poop right away, they would think I'm crazy. So it's like, you know, little cultural things like that. And it, it, it all um, summarizes to we tend to do more things to the patient with our hands over there than here.
2: Gotcha. Thank you. Thanks for answering that. So just before we close everything up, a lot of, I think, a good amount of the people that are going to be listening to this are those who um, they're either pre-med or medical students, and some of them might be in a different country. And so if you were to give advice to somebody who is in medical school or graduating medical school outside of the U.S., What's some advice that you would give someone um, looking to match here?
3: Know what you want. Um, hopefully, you made the decision early that you want to get into the United States. Use your resources that are available to you. Um, usually, medical schools overseas they know a little bit. There's usually some flow of people that are trying to get into the United States. People are trying to get into Europe. Those people in those faculties know the process most of the time and they know people that did it before reach out to those people figure out who graduated from your school and he and is in the united states or wherever you want to go reach out to them because usually we are we know what how hard it is and we are very open to help and that something whenever i hear that anybody from DR and especially my school is reaching out to me I have hosted people in my house I've give them all the advice that I can Um, so find those people out see what they're doing ask them for advice and they will usually disclose their willingness to help right away whenever if they are uh, willing to help like that and if you find those people see if you can come here and do a rotation, do the paperwork. That's something that's going to help a lot because one of the ways that I see IMGs getting up to speed in terms of uh, competition would be getting a letter of recommendation. So do that. And if you really want to learn how to do research, that's another one. So maybe do a year of that. Maybe um, find a job learn the the ropes of doing research that's one of the things that i didn't do and i wish i was more knowledgeable of that um so that's one of the pathways that you can do as well awesome well thank you so much
2: for answering all those questions i think uh that'll do it for this episode of medicus
3: thank you
0: thanks for listening to this episode this wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners please rate review and subscribe we appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast To support us, go to MedicusPodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient doctor relation is formed and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.